Welcome back to the planet today with Matt Norton. Today is Friday, August 13th, 2021. I am your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer and co-host, Nick Janusa. Nick, how's it going today? Maddie, I'm doing so well, and wow, what a show today. Yeah, this one's going to be jam-packed, and we are also joined today by recurring guest co-host, CJ Bonifati. CJ, what's going on, man? I'm absolutely hyped. We got a three-man booth for this one. All the boys in in the call at the same time. I cannot possibly be more jacked. <laughs> it is a good day to be a podcast listener, let me tell you that. If you are new here, welcome to the planet today. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy, all in an easily digestible weekly podcast for you to listen to on your own time. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we are happy to have you as a listener. Before we get started, we wanted to read another listener review on Apple Podcasts as a thank you for supporting our show. This one comes from my pal and former college roommate, Twisted Tea Guy, Greg, who says, the way you said, thanks, Greg, was electric. Even better than when Lil Dicky thanked his uncle for providing free-to-use Netflix credentials. Wish I could rate this pod six stars out of five. Keep them coming. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Twisted Tea Guy Greg. I love the username, and I'm just going to say it one more time. Thanks, Greg. That was fantastic. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That way we can thank you properly on the show with a shout-out, just like we did today for Twisted Tea Guy Greg. Um, Just a heads up for today, the beginning of our show isn't exactly the most positive, but I think we can make up for it in the second half with some fun banter about our feature story today. Yeah, we always do, Matt. We always do. Uh, So let's go ahead and get into our quick hits. So this first one comes from Matt McGrath of the BBC, who writes, Floods. Research shows millions more at risk of flooding. Yes, we talked about the floods in Germany and Belgium earlier this summer, and we wanted to follow up with this story as it provides some context to what happened there and in London and a bunch of other places in Europe that experienced flooding. The study, which was originally published in Nature.com, talks about how people have been migrating and a growing number of floods have put almost 25% more people at risk of flooding since the year 2000. The same journal estimates that millions more people will be exposed to floods by the end of the decade, and there's a really interesting map that's displayed in the article, which shows how much of the world is at an increased risk of flooding now or will be in the near future. And if for nothing else, that part of the article is really worth checking out. It's also worth noting that the models that they use are based on elevations, rainfall patterns and projections, and then data from ground sensors. So this means that the models can't predict things like population increases in certain areas or unexpected damages like dams breaking from a hurricane, which both increase flood risks. So an example the article gives is Hurricane Harvey. Um, The model would not have picked that up because that was a dam breaking due to a hurricane that caused a lot of the flooding there. The authors say that the key drivers of flooding are heavy rainfall, tropical storms or surges, and snow and ice melt. Unfortunately, these risk factors are all likely to become more common due to climate change. Dam breaks represented less than 2% of floods, but they did have the highest increased incidence in terms of population exposed. Now, this makes sense because of dams usually being located in a close enough proximity to densely populated cities. So hopefully this study provides some answers to the questions people might have had related to the massive flooding in Europe earlier this summer. 
Yeah, it has been a brutal summer. Every single weekend, basically, has been just rain, at least in the Northeast. Um, But yeah. All right, so this next one comes from The Hill, where Rachel Frazen writes, Biden to strengthen vehicle mileage standards set 50% EV goal. This was announced towards the end of last week, but we wanted to bring it up on the show this week for anyone who might have missed it. The executive order sets a goal of 50% of the nation's vehicle sales to be emissions-free by 2030. It also tightens pollution standards for both cars and trucks. The Biden administration considers vehicle standards to be a major part of climate policy, as it should. As it stands currently, the transportation sector makes up 29% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, which is the most out of any sector. Reducing our emissions, which we'll talk more about later on why that's absolutely crucial, could become a lot easier if we reduce the amount of carbon being produced by the highest producing sector in the country. One downside of the executive order is that the government incentives around electric vehicles generally help more affluent people rather than the average family, according to Ivan Penn and Naraj Chakshe of the New York Times. Yeah, it's definitely a thing where people with lower income cannot afford electric vehicles. Matt, what do you think is a reasonable timetable for uh, people who are less affluent than the soon-to-be-mentioned Jeff Bezos um, to be able to buy these electric vehicles? So, great question. And if you would have asked me that question you know, three years ago, I'd probably say we're looking at the end of the decade. Um, market trends, as well as research and development, was gearing up towards this electric vehicle transition anyway. But with government incentives now and government mandates coming from not just the U.S., but many other industrialized nations, a lot of different automobile manufacturers have already planned on making all of their vehicles that they sell electric by 2025. So I think a reasonable projection would be 2025, if not sooner. I mean, you got to think that if BMW is saying they're going to do it in 2025, what's stopping Chevrolet from trying to beat them to it? Yeah. I mean, sometimes competition can be a good thing. And I, I think this is something where, you know, the sooner we pump that out and the sooner that first car company hits 100%, the floodgates are going to be opened. Yeah, definitely. Trickle down. All right. So the next one is titled Dixie Fire is now second largest in California history. It was written by Livia Albeck Ripka and Melina Delkic of the New York Times. Yeah, so we wanted to provide a follow-up on the Dixie Fire, which has now burned over 460,000 acres of land and has caused thousands of people to evacuate the area. Thankfully, no deaths have been reported as a result of the fires as of Tuesday. Um, And some of the quotes from this article I just found jarring, so we both wanted to share them here. Uh, The first one's from Dan Kearns, who's a volunteer firefighter in California, and he says, we're at the mercy of the winds. We talked about the fire tornadoes that wildfires have created this summer, and this quote kind of just reinforces how large of an impact wind has on wildfires and firefighters. It's kind of just putting them in a position where they can't really control the fire until the winds settle down. And the way that the fires are impacting air pressure is creating heavier winds. Dan Kearns also said that the fire took two days to get to Greenville, California, and now Greenville is gone. It was a city of around 1,000 people that is now largely destroyed by the fires. Another factor is how heavy smoke has made it impossible for aircrafts to fly in certain parts of the fire area, so controlling the fire has been very, very difficult. Some good news, though, 
Mark Beveridge, a public information officer with Cal Fire, says, we have favorable temperatures right now, relatively low winds, except on the ridgetops, and conditions are improving. So hopefully, you know, in the next coming days and weeks, this fire that, like we said, has been burning for over three weeks will start to fade out. The only fire that was of a greater magnitude was 2020's August Complex fire, and according to CAL FIRE, most of the state's 20 worst fires have occurred in the last two decades. You know the uh, meme on Twitter where people are like, I'm tired of living through natural disasters and like historical events. 20 of the worst fires have occurred in the last two decades. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, man. So it's 20 of the worst fires in the last 20 years. So basically, if we're to average that together, the worst fire of all time happens year after year after year for 20 years. So, you know, it's good and we're going to get into this, but it's good that now the IPCC has said this wildfire is because of climate change. People can't deny it anymore. All right. So let's move on. So the next one is a follow-up story actually from something we discussed all the way back in episode one, if you can believe it. Uh, And it is no animal left behind. Kenya holds first national wildlife census from Hillary Orinde of Yahoo News. I don't know what's more surprising. The fact that we remembered to follow up on a story that we covered 10 weeks ago and that we promised that we would follow up on or the fact that Yahoo News is still kicking around. (laughs) Just kidding, Yahoo News. Just kidding. Uh, So the long awaited follow up story provided some very interesting results. Poaching, human expansion, and climate change have had a huge impact on the global wildlife population, and the census in Kenya proves that Kenya falls under this trend. African elephants have been hit the hardest, where over 60% of their population has declined. And as a refresher, the study began in May and was conducted in Kenya's national parks and reserves and in private and community conservancies. It also included marine life, which is something I don't think we touched on when we covered this story in the beginning, so that was kind of a cool update I found out. They are using citizen science, where individual and local advocacy groups are helping with the count. And the spotters are also tracking where animals eat, drink, and rest, which are all important things to know for both conservation and anti-poaching purposes. Conservationists are concerned with further expansion and the concern that animals might not be located outside of protected areas when they conduct the next census in a decade, meaning as we continue to develop and as we continue to spread where we are living and driving and being humans, we're taking up space that these animals need and that the animals consider crucial. So hopefully that's something that we can get under control. And the results are somewhat unsurprising in that regard, but still interesting nonetheless. And hopefully the data found will help with poaching prevention and conservation in the future. Now, Matt, you know I'm a big uh, data guy, and it's really easy to look at this kind of story and feel really sad, right? 60% population decline for a a beautiful animal like the elephant is just horrible, but this is the the first step in a a long war, right? This is the first battle. Uh, It's very difficult to know what you don't know without a starting point, Uh, so I applaud the people who, who... did this study um, and started the census uh, because using data science uh, can be an effective way to combat some of these declining numbers. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's a good point too, because, you know, we speculate and we acknowledge that some of these big charismatic species like elephants, their, their numbers are declining, but to have concrete numbers and say it's declined by 60% or there's only X amount of this animal left, like that gets people moving. That gets them to get to work instead of just thinking, oh, you know, it's too bad that these animals are on the decline. Now they know, hey, there's only this many left. And if we don't do something, we're going to lose them. Yeah, absolutely. I also want to give you a quick pat on the back, Matt, for bringing this story back up. It's a fantastic callback. Please don't call me a hero. I I am not (laughs) a hero. (laughs) I won't go that far, but I'm damn close. I'm on the line. All right. So our final one and one that we're actually going to spend some extra time on comes from The Guardian. And Fiona Harvey writes, major climate changes, inevitable and irreversible. IPCC's starkest warning yet. So the conversation that we're having today will not be all inclusive. And we kind of just want to see what developments come out of this report before having a full feature conversation on it. Um, Essentially, Sunday night rolled along and I saw that the IPCC was getting ready to release its report tomorrow, uh, which was Monday. And my first thought was, well, here we go. I was a senior in high school or a freshman in college. I don't remember what month it came out when this originally came out. And I hadn't declared a major yet, so I didn't really follow this extensively. But luckily, by the time I had gone to grad school, I had a professor who, instead of giving us a textbook, gave us the IPCC's 2013 report and said, we're going to work through this all semester. And all we did was research what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was reporting about in that report. So on Monday, they released their sixth assessment report, which was titled Climate Change 2021, The Physical Science Basis. And they released the first report that they ever did in 1988. So this is a longstanding scientific group within the community, and they compile the work of hundreds of experts and peer-reviewed studies. The IPCC is composed of thousands of researchers from 195 different countries. So it's not an organization where you know, it's one country that's got six scientists and they're promoting what they want to be true. Like this is an organization whose only agenda is promoting the truth about what causes climate change, the impacts and the future risks of climate change and how adaptation and mitigation can reduce those risks. Unfortunately, the Lays report highlighted a lot of risks that shouldn't come to a shock uh, to listeners of this show because you've heard us talk about some of those risks that already have begun to ramp up. It basically gives a projection that things will get worse in the next 20 to 30 years, but we can still reach the Paris Agreement goals by making changes now. And I know that that's scary to hear. Um, And with something like this, when you hear it, it's daunting. And that's not to say that things are going to get worse for 20 to 30 years and then stay there. It's no matter what we do, things are going to get worse. But if we act now, we can reduce those risks and we can make it so the parts that get worse get better instead of just tabling uh, tabling off. Droughts, rampant wildfires, intense flooding, extreme rainfall, stronger hurricanes. You've heard these phrases. They're nothing new, but you know now that they're more abundant and more destructive. And with this report, we can definitively say these are happening because of climate change. The report basically shows that the links are there and we can no longer both sides this argument that does not deserve to be debated anymore. It is happening. It is human caused. Full stop. That's the end of it. 
The IPCC found that human activity has changed and continues to change the Earth's climate in unprecedented ways. And some of those changes now appear to be irreversible. It's looking like global temperatures will rise by more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial revolution levels, which was the goal set in the 2015 climate agreement in Paris. Harvey, who's the author of, of this article, writes that every fraction of a degree matters here and that further heating will compound the effects of climate change. So it's going to take a rapid and drastic reduction of our current emissions to fix this issue. The report mentions that human activity was unequivocally the cause of rapid changes to the climate, including sea level rises, melting polar ice, melting glaciers, heat waves, flood, and droughts. The good news is it's still possible to stabilize the climate at 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, but it will take a lot of effort from the international community. 1.5 degrees was set as that benchmark because that level of heating is still going to result in increased heat waves, more intense storms, more droughts, more floods, but it provides a much lesser risk than two degrees and an even lesser risk than three degrees. So 1.5 degrees isn't good, but it's definitely manageable and we can deal with manageable. It's crazy that we're past the point of like, we still need to go up before we can come down. Like we're not going to be able to just go straight down. And I mean, that just kind of tells you how much work we have ahead of us and uh, yeah, how much there still is left to go. Yeah. And it's crazy because you brought this up when we were reviewing before the flood that movie came out in 2016, and I remember you saying something that jumped out at me a lot when you said, it's it's crazy how we're still having the same conversations. And the IPCC is still having the same conversation that they were having in 2013, and with the report before that. Except the difference here is, instead of saying it's looking like humans are causing climate change, but, and they would continue to do the research and read the peer-reviewed journals, now it's it's happening it's human caused and there is no way you can say anything else without just being wrong. There's no opinions about this anymore. There's the facts and then people who are wrong. Even if we do keep things below 1.5 degrees, sea level rises, melting glaciers in the Arctic and warming and acidification of the world's oceans are pretty much inevitable at this point. That sucks. Like there's no way around it. There's no way to say that, oh, you know, the ice caps are gonna melt but it's okay because this, like, that's gonna impact the seas, that's gonna impact the wildlife there, that's gonna impact our global temperatures. And when those melt, the methane stored in the permafrost there is gonna go into the atmosphere. And that's part of why over the next 20 years and 30 years, things will still get worse because we've essentially screwed over the ice caps and that was kind of the breaking point. So Antonio Gutierrez, who is the UN Secretary General, is quoted in this article as calling the report code red for the planet. He says, quote, the alarm bells are deafening and the evidence is irrefutable. Before calling for an end to new coal power plants and to new fossil fuel exploration and development. It's insane that I'm actually impressed by an important world leader taking a hardline stance like that. Like it. It just speaks to the times we live in, that it's shocking to hear somebody in that position say, this is it, code red. Because I'm, I'm so jaded by the leadership we've experienced in, in America that to hear a leader say this and make that big of a call to action, uh, and no new coal power plants, no new fossil fuels, 
it's sad. <laughs> it's sad that I feel that way. Yeah, the bar has been set pretty low, but he did not pull any punches here, which is good. So the report basically says we have until 2030 to determine what kind of climate we want to live in. And we need to make drastic changes to our energy systems to make sure that the climate is desirable for human life. For people who will ultimately complain about the economic impacts of drastic reductions in carbon emissions, I have two things I would like to bring up. It would have taken a 4% reduction in global emissions per year from 2000 until now to keep us below 1.5 degrees. Instead, we are 20 years after Al Gore called this the greatest threat to humanity and need to make up all of that ground. Environmentalists have been trying for years. Second point I want to bring up is that what's the economic impact of not doing anything? How much do you think your electric bill will be if you want to keep your house a cool 73 degrees in the summer as the summer itself gets hotter? It's worth noting that the climate models that the scientists have been using are getting more accurate in both predicting future projections and using those same models to replicate the past. So this should be a reminder that the IPCC knows a lot more than someone who reads something on Facebook and says, climate change can't be real because it's cold outside today. Greta Thunberg highlighted how the report estimates that the carbon budget that gives us the best odds of staying under 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming will run out in less than five and a half years if we continue to emit at our current rate. And this is problematic because despite many countries pledging to phase out fossil fuels by 2030 and have net zero emissions by 2050, The Guardian reported in July that the International Energy Agency estimates that 2023 will likely have the highest level of carbon dioxide output in human history. That being said, if we can stop adding CO2 to the atmosphere by 2050, the warming should stabilize at about 1.5 degrees Celsius. So... I don't want people to think all hope is lost. This report is bad, but it's kind of a do something right now and not an it's too late kind of bad. So we have all these plans to do better, but I worry that those plans are not enough. And climate scientists have been giving that warning for a while now. So what I'm really hoping for here is that when the COP26, which is the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference, will provide real, genuine solutions. It might be too late to reverse all of the issues caused, but it's not too late to prevent the worst of them from happening. COP26 will be meeting from October 31st to November 12th of this year in Glasgow, so there's a lot that's riding on this conference. We will be keeping up with it extensively, and that's a promise. So while this report is scary, and I would be lying to you if I said it's not extremely concerning, I'm very hopeful that this is the kick in the ass that the world leaders needed right before COP26. Yeah, and Matt, I actually just wanted to close us out with a quote I saw from Kate Marvel, who's a climate scientist, who said the following on Monday before the report was released. As a climate scientist, I'd like you to know, I don't have hope. I have something better. Certainty. We know exactly what's causing climate change we can absolutely, one, avoid the worst, and two, build a better world in the process. Tomorrow, if you live in a democracy, please call your representatives and tell them how much a livable climate matters to you. If you're in the U.S., you can call the Senate at 202-224-3121. I'm going to give that to you again. 202-224-3121. She said, I understand the frustration. I get the despair and the anxiety. 
No one is saying this is going to be easy, but it's possible. The biggest uncertainty by far in climate projections is what humans will do. Let's go to work. And then she also said, please remember, giving up helps no one but those invested in delay and denial. I refuse to subscribe to a lie they promote. And I think we all know who she's talking about. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty perfect way to close that out. So, you know, we're going to give that phone number again. Seriously, if you're listening to the show, call your senators, 202-224-3121. And I think that's as good of a time as ever to take a quick break. Yeah, I agree. You can go ahead and call your senators and then also listen to our Val Alta ad read. So Matt, this week I was uh, I was in the office, and it was a blistering hot day out. So I walk inside, and sure enough, AC is probably set at maybe 65, 66. And golly, my nose was a faucet. So you know what I had on me? Please tell me you had the Alta. I kept the Alta on me, Matt. I just did. Vala Alta's everyday handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. You can build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.com and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot com and code TPT. You guys aren't going to believe this, but the other day I was I was playing some golf and uh, you know how sometimes you put on some sunscreen, but you put it on, you're a little too sweaty and you get it in your eyes. But I had hit a beautiful drive, drove the ball 265 yards. I'm on the green. I'm putting for an eagle. I've got all sorts of sunscreen going on in my eyes. The, the sun is pounding down on my face. I really couldn't see straight. But you know what? I had that Alta on me. Wiped up real quick. Sunk the 15-footer. Oh. And I was flying like an eagle. Guys, be like CJ. Sink the putt on 15. It'll make you better at golf. Sink the putt on 15. This thing does more than you could ever imagine. It'll make you better at golf. It'll make you a better dad. Vala Alta Welcome back to the planet today. Once again, we are joined today by CJ Bonafati in the studio once again with me and Nick. And we are about to talk about a fun old conversation to get, get everyone fired back up and having some fun here. Yeah, and I know, Matt, on the show, you, your listeners, you guys, you talk about rare and exotic animals. Uh, So I think it's appropriate to talk about a group of creatures who impact our planet more than any other. Billionaires. Yeah, that's right, billionaires. And not just any billionaires. You know, they're a dime a dozen nowadays. Today, let's talk about the people who are so rich, their new hobby is just launching things up into space. What a segue. (laughs) So uh, the billionaire space race is currently ongoing between Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, and Elon Musk. 
It's the first time we've seen the private sector take anyone into space. And now SpaceX, which is Musk's company, Virgin Galactic, which is Branson's, and Blue Origin, Bezos, have all reached space. The thing about the billionaire space race is that it sounds cool in theory. I mean, you have people who are now using their hard-earned money, and by hard-earned, I mean made by exploiting their workers, to reach space, the final frontier. Space is cool. Who wouldn't want to go to space? But for me, I find it sort of hypocritical to have Jeff Bezos, who's now burning a ton of carbon emissions for a quick joyride into space, also be the same guy who named the Seattle Kraken's new hockey arena, Climate Pledge Arena. And at that arena, they will have net zero carbon emissions, solar panels on the roof, zero single-use plastics, and purchase carbon offsets for what they can't reduce, like transportation emissions for the players. The arena will reuse water from the roof for the hockey ice and feature other water efficiency measures to minimize the arena's impact. You also have people like Elon Musk, who wants to colonize Mars, but he's also promoting better battery storage research for renewable energy, new solar roofing technology, electric vehicle promotion, etc. And I just feel like it begs the question of whether or not these sort of people are undoing some of the good they do. To which I would say, yes. Each launch releases between 200 and 300 tons of CO2. And because the rockets are reaching the upper atmosphere, the emissions remain in the atmosphere longer, giving them a higher warming impact than if something like an airplane released the same amount of emissions. And I'm not trying to take away from Climate Pledge Arena or some of Musk's work with renewables and with battery storage and electric vehicles. I would, however, love to call them out for not letting their workers unionize and the working conditions in Amazon's fulfillment centers if we had more time. Scientists say that the emissions from rocket engines have historically been seen as small, but as the frequency of launches increase and the larger rockets are used, the impact of these launches will likely grow. Carbon emissions from launches are increasing by 5.6% a year at the same time that the IPCC is recommending that we drastically reduce our carbon emissions. So I'm genuinely curious if people like this, you know, do they think that what they're doing is essential or is it just fun? And either way, is it worth it? Matt, I'm going to answer that for you. I think it's fun. Did you see Bezos's face after he came down? He was doing that. He was doing that weird laugh. He was like, <laughs> yo, that was memed a lot. He's just such a weirdo. It's just amazing. It's really helpful that he already looks like an alien because if somebody came down from space looking the way he looked, I would have been like, "Alien got him. Let's get this guy to <laughs> let's get this guy in the government's hand and and dissect him." Dissecting billionaires. That's an interesting. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Well, hey, you'd have to get through a layer of like Cole's clothing before you dissect them. Yeah, I was going to say, you can't dissect Mark Zuckerberg because you would just have to take apart machinery and be like, oh, he actually is a robot. You would just keep saying smoking meats. He'd be like, smoking meats, smoking meats, <laughs> smoking meats. So it's worth noting that Blue Origin's rocket fuel is cleaner than traditional rocket fuel. However, it still creates thermal changes that negatively impact the ozone layer. Every single person has made this joke already, and I figured, we have a podcast, why not join them? Did you see Bezos' rocket and the shape of it? 
he's definitely compensating for something. <laughs> you're, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. And I think, you know what's nuts about this kind of thing? We look at an industry like the, the cruise industry right now, and that's like a major carbon emitter, totally unnecessary. Like it's not like, it's not a critical form of transportation, right? It's leisure cruising, and we're about to go do it in space. Like it's a whole industry that hasn't even developed yet, and we're just gonna go. We're we're gonna go ahead and pepper that on. We're like salt bag, just sprinkling that all over our other issues. Uh, so, uh, it, it, uh, impact on the environment aside, uh, I think it's more important to look at this from like a, a opportunity costs. Uh, you know, like what what are we giving up? by having our money kind of just launched into space. Someone like Jeffrey Bezos has the funding of a small country. In fact, most countries in the world have a smaller GDP than Bezos's net worth. It's estimated at $186.5 billion. Wow. That's so annoying. Wow. <laughs> His wealth is larger than a country than, say, Iraq, whose GDP is about $178 billion. And that's a country with an oil economy. That's not some third world, you know, wouldn't be able to find it on a map. That, that is a world economic power. Just take, take a moment to let that sink in. It is an insane, incomprehensible fortune. Let's think for a second about Jeff's 186 bill. If I took the entirety of his net worth and invested it in like some bull crap index fund that's going to get him 2% a year, you know, just theoretically, he could use those profits to pay for the entirety of the national parks budget. That's right. Just 2% of Jeff's horde, literal dragon on pile of gold, like desolation of smog horde <laughs> would be about $3.72 billion. The U.S. government allocated $3.123 billion to national parks for the fiscal year of 2021. Uh, th- this is all a pretty simplified example, and there's no way I would ever expect anyone to invest the entirety of their wealth, which includes assets like homes, vehicles, and other investment holdings into a, into an index fund to get 2% and, and, and pay for the parks with that. It's, it's, it's all BS, but it just goes to show you how insanely wealthy the man is. Now, to be fair, Jeff has established a fund of $10 billion to fight climate change, but this is coming from a man who once said, The only way, and I'm quoting here, the only way that I can see to deploy this much financial resource is by converting my Amazon winnings into space travel. When asked about how he intends to spend his wealth, he's called it, hey, he called it winnings like like he was at the horse races. Like this guy came back from the Kentucky Derby with his winnings and the only way... He can see how to spend it is into space travel. Uh, you know, I don't know the textbook definition of virtue signaling, but I think we see it a lot with people like Jeff. And now, listen, I'm not going to try and tell people what to do with their money. 
But there has to be more productive things, right? Our planet's literally burning. Like, as I'm speaking right now, the Dixie wildfire is out in California, raging through the state. Climate scientists agree that radical action is required. And frankly, I don't think the answers to our problems can be found in space. Yeah, and just to add on that, CJ, um, this was when uh, Bezos' net worth was a measly 130 billion. I'm sorry, 130.7 billion. Um, and this was, I don't know how long ago this was, I'm assuming before the pandemic, but he could, one person, he could single-handedly end the homelessness in America. So there are 554,000 homeless people in America and the cost of, let's just say, a $100,000 house for each person is about $55.4 billion. And he could give people a modest monthly food budget, $700 for six months for a measly $73.9 billion. So take all of those numbers and then magnify that by the number of billionaires who just waste stupid amounts of money there are. Like, we don't need to have these problems if the people who were avoiding paying their taxes were as philanthropic as they like to pretend they are. A new market report estimates that the global suborbital transportation and space tourism market is estimated to reach $2.58 billion in 2031, growing 17.15% each year for the next decade. So it's not like this trend appears to be going anywhere. And if for no other reason than how pompous that sounds, suborbital transportation and space tourism is the most like... I don't know what to do with my money, so I'm going to buy something dumb instead of putting it into something productive thing I have ever heard. I found an article in May from the Washington Post that estimates it would take $8 billion to electrify the entire United States Postal Service fleet. I don't know the exact numbers for this, but I'm sure Amazon's cost would be comparable to electrify all of their vehicles. And CJ, Jeff Bezos' net worth has actually gone up today, according to Forbes, and it's now $192 billion, meaning he could pay for that conversion and still be the third richest person alive at $184 billion. Elon Musk would only slightly overtake him with 184.5. Another thing where I think we could definitely better spend our money, the Green New Deal could help get us to 100% renewable energy by 2030. And that would cost an estimated $93 trillion. So we're talking about net zero carbon emissions in nine years at the cost of $93 trillion. And I think chipping away at that cost seems like a much more noble goal than bringing some friends up into space to enjoy the view. Yeah, you know what would be great is if we could just get Bezos, Musk, and Richard Branson all in a room and just be like, guys, get us the hyperspeed train, please. Yeah, just give us give us an entirely renewable energy powered hyperspeed train that can get us from Boston to New York in an hour. Because we know it can work. We know it can happen. They have hyperspeed trains in other countries. We just haven't invested in the infrastructure here. And that's something that makes people have to fly less if you can take a train for just as quick. Isn't Elon trying to do something like that, but like mole man style, like he's trying to. Yeah. The boring yeah. company. It's uh, he bores down and then creates tunnels under cities. Dude, when, when he, when he came out with that company, I'm pretty sure if you invested in it, he sent you a flamethrower. 
Like the man is not making sound financial decisions. He's just like, this would be cool. I'm going to do it. And then it turns out to be sound financial decisions somehow. And the latest thing that he's done that makes no sense to me is Elon Musk is going to launch a satellite into space that displays ads. This was first reported by Business Insider on Twitter. And Musk is one of several billionaires who is investing vast sums on the space race. So SpaceX is going to launch the satellite with a display screen in 2022. Ad space on the screen will be bought using cryptocurrency, which if you remember, uh, actually the last episode that CJ was on, I believe it was episode two, we talked about cryptocurrency and how at the time, Elon Musk was not going to be accepting cryptocurrency as a form of payment for Tesla because of the environmental harm. So there goes that idea. So we're investing in that now, um, where crypto, which has its own environmental impacts, can now be compounded by using it to purchase ad space for something else with a high carbon footprint going into space. You know what really bothers me about this? The, the ads in space is knowing that like Jeff Bezos and his rich friends are going to be like the last people to witness unfettered ad free space. <laughs> like that just really, that really bothers me. They, I had to get that off my chest. They get the Hulu premium of space travel. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, on a more serious note, we have green programs that need funding. Would it not make more sense to help establish solar and wind farms in developing countries while also training the people there in development, installation, and maintenance of those renewable energy facilities? That would create a clean source of energy. That would create economic stimulus for their workforce. And that stimulus might contribute to a decrease in poaching wildlife. And I know that sounds like a weird link, but poaching is typically done by two groups of people. The first being people who are desperate for money. The second being people who are morally bankrupt. And I'm looking at you, Junior, uh, when I'm talking about the latter. We might not be able to fix the latter, but we can help contribute to pulling people up out of poverty so they don't need to do things like hunt elephants for their tusks and hunt rhinos for their horns or shoot a lion because you think it's fun. So, Matt, the, the question for me is, what would make this worth it? Branson says he'll sell rocket trips to scientific researchers. Is there anything we can learn from these missions that might offset the cost to our planet? I mean, my, my initial thought is no, um, because we have issues on Earth that we need to solve before we can go to space to figure out the answers to other issues we might not have yet. And I think in Branson saying he'll sell rocket trips to scientific researchers lies the problem. He's like, hey, this is going to be really, really great for scientific research. So you can go on one of my rockets for the low, low cost of whatever. Like he's, he's just trying to make a buck out of it. And that kind of rubs me the wrong way. If it was really about the science for him, he's a billionaire who doesn't need the additional money. Like you'd think he would just be like, hey, I'm going to go up into space next Tuesday for lunch. Does anyone want to come with me and use my satellite and telescope to do some research? Carpool, brother. And it just all, it all feels so like skin level, like anything they could accomplish up there. You know what I mean? Cause it's, it's, you're up there for what? 11 minutes, something like that on these launches, these suborbital launches. Uh, how, how much can actually be done? The, these, these ships are not outfitted uh, for, you know, scientific research. So it, it's almost like, what, what are they actually learning? 
Like, are we still, like, up there playing around with zero gravity being like, oh, does this grow bigger? Or, like, will this be smaller? Or... Uh, <laughs> dude each each flight is gonna land and you know the screen on netflix where it's like are you still watching it's gonna be like are you still researching or quit virgin galactic <laughs> oh my god he's just gonna keep making people buy more tickets there's gonna be ads for his tickets in space like out the window they're gonna be trying to measure the stars with a i don't know what do you do that with an astrolabe is that when ask, you measure the stars with an asterisk roughly? Uh, I guess. I'm, not a, I'm not a big star guy. That's We're outside of my expertise. Big Star Wars guy. You're just trying to measure the, the, the stars with your astrolabe and just an advertisement goes right, right in your way. You're only up there for 11 minutes. Like. Well, dude, that's what's going to end up happening is like all the ad space is going to be like, oh, you, you went up in, in a SpaceX like rocket ship and then you're flying and it's going to be like, you spent this much on a recreational trip? Fly Virgin Galactic for <laughs> only $11 million. Matt, I don't know why I was expecting the next thing to come out of your mouth to be like, were you affected by SpaceX mesothelioma? <laughs> if you or a loved one was, was impacted by SpaceX launch. Yeah, it's just going to turn into a big old measuring contest between these three, isn't it? Yeah, it probably will. And, you know, to, re- to get further into that measuring contest is reaching mars like actually feasible like they keep saying 2050 2050 2050 mars like we are still like like mars is a a brett Favre. go pack go go pack go beautiful 75 yard bomb right that's getting to mars and and we're like me in 11th grade spaghetti arms, like just plopping people up into space right now. So, it like, is it possible? What kind of investment is it going to take? Uh, and, and can we actually ruin Mars? Like, is, is that ethical? Like, for us to go ruin Mars just because we we ruined our own backyard? Yeah, and that's a really important question because I don't think we're going to go up there with the intention of colonizing it because we can't survive on that atmosphere. So unless we figure out how to do that, we're just going up there to pick up the natural resources from there. And Matt, actually, I have an answer to can we ruin the atmosphere up there and make it livable for us? And it's actually a video called How to Terraform Venus. I'm talking Venus, folks. And look it up on YouTube. It's um, I don't know how to pronounce this name. It's like some German name. It's like Kurzgestatt. Um, but it's in a nutshell is the name of the channel. And the title of the video is How to Terraform Venus Quickly. And it's actually super interesting. You guys should check it out. It's also a really cool video. I definitely will after we finish recording. Uh, but yeah, so it, I, I guess we can, we, we can get there. Should we? I don't know. Like, like, what are we, what are we going to do up there? I, I, don't, I like this earth pretty damn good. Yeah. And like, I'd rather focus on fixing that and like making up for where the issues that we have caused over the past 120 years instead of, Hey, that whole earth experiment, it was real good for a while, but like, let's get a fresh start. I think we need to see other planets. It's not you. It's me. Hypothetical thought <laughs> experiment. Hypothetical thought experiment. Let's say we, we discover a, a rare a chemical in Uranus. Bonk. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're done here.
And that'll do it for this week's episode of TPT. Next week, it's Nick's turn for a well-deserved vacation. So we will be running my interview with wildland firefighter Tyler Smith. Tyler is an awesome guy who provided a ton of great insight into the wildfires we've spoken about on our show, and we're excited for you to hear it. Until that episode drops, you can keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at planettodaypod or email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. We'd also really appreciate it if you shared the show with a friend. So tell someone who you think would like it or retweet us, post to your Instagram story the stuff that we post. It all helps. Aside from that, if you have any questions you want answered, you can send them to us. If you see a story you want us to cover, you can send that too. And if you have a guest you'd like for us to have on, let us know and we will reach out to them. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you listen on Google or Spotify, the reviews there really help the most. If you don't feel like it's worth five stars, you can let us know that too, but please give us a five-star rating. That way, you know, it helps us out. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norden. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norden. We're produced and co-hosted every week by Nick Janusa, who does the music for every single show. Nick, where can our listeners hear more from you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and you know how to spell it. I know you do. We were joined today by our friend and co-host, CJ Bonafati. CJ, where can people keep up with you? Uh, doing a bit of streaming on Twitch. That's twitch.tv slash the Honorable Cal with a K and two L's. Uh, playing a bit of Final Fantasy. Uh, talking about fantasy football because that's coming up. So uh, definitely more lighthearted than some of the topics discussed here today. I promise. <laughs> and you can also catch your boy, Matt Norton, moderating CJ's Twitch chat. Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace.